You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Thank you so much for being with us here this morning uh, for a very exciting event, uh, discussion, and report launch. Uh, It is 2018. Uh, Next week is the UN General Assembly, and we will hit the third anniversary of the launching of the Sustainable Development Goals. And it is a absolutely critical moment for all of us to be focusing uh, one-fifth of the way through the agenda, or as we often talk about in the uh, child health community, about a thousand days in, you can often know uh, how your health is progressing or the health of your baby at a thousand days. If you survive a thousand days and show signs of thriving, then it's looking good, and if not, you're in for some trouble. And so it's our contention that it is a critical moment uh, for the world to be looking at the SDGs, how we are doing, and whether we are delivering the critical outcomes that so much of the world uh, both saw and demanded and is now expecting uh, to be delivered uh, now and through 2030. And if there is a measure uh, of the progress on the SDGs, um, certainly goal 1.1, the eradication of extreme poverty, must be one of the most important things that we will look to. Uh, In many ways, the goal to end extreme poverty in and of itself is not only a fundamental moral obligation for humanity, but I also strongly believe that it is a bellwether for the goals in general. Because if we, as a community of people and a community of nations, have the wherewithal to address the reasons why people remain in extreme poverty, whether because of discrimination and exclusion, whether because of conflict or climate or disease, if we are able to tackle those things and demonstrate progress for the poorest among us, then surely we will be tackling those priorities across the board. And so today uh, at ODI, we are launching uh, a new report on financing the end of extreme poverty. Uh, Because as we all know, if we are going to succeed in leaving no one behind, it not only means reaching everybody, but it often means making sure that we have the wherewithal to reach the poorest first. This is not something that we can hope is going to happen at the goal line or the finish line. It has to happen from the starting line. So we're one-fifth of the way through the race, and we're going to have a searching discussion today uh, about whether we are moving fast enough and whether we have, uh, to maybe mix my metaphors terribly, whether we have enough horses uh, pulling us fast enough uh, to get to that that finish line. Um, We are very excited to be joined by a fantastic set of speakers. Let me introduce them briefly, and then I'm going to have each of them speak and then critically invite all of you into the conversation. Uh, We also have many people joining us online, and if you want to participate as well, uh, we hopefully, technology allowing, have ways for you to submit questions as well, and we'll be looking uh, forward to those. Um, Let me start on my right and uh, thank the Honorable 
Jacob Safa, the Minister of Finance and Economic Development from Sierra Leone, for joining us today. Welcome. Uh, he is one of the new players, critical players, on the international development finance scene, having taken up his role in May of this year, previously having served uh, as the Sierra Leone People Party's Secretary General and Chairman of the Election Committee. Um, you, sir, have a big role and agenda to play in what we are talking about today, and so we are all excited to hear um, about your perspective. Sorry, I work for the World Bank before. And you worked for the World Bank before. <laughs> uh, next, uh, we have the Honorable Minister Ola Tornes, uh, who was appointed Danish Minister for Development Cooperation in November 2016 for the second time having served in that role from 2005 and to 2010. And so not only does she bring an amazing amount of experience to the role, uh, but something that we were talking about before that maybe we'll get into is a fascinating perspective on the ways the world has changed since you last did the job and uh, what we are confronting. But you also served as Minister for Higher Education, Science, and Minister for Education, having focused on the accomplishment of the SDGs in your own country. So maybe we can get some of that uh, perspective as well. Um, and on the screen, uh, we have joining us uh, from the OECD, uh, my dear friend and colleague, Charlotte Petri Gornitska, who um, is the chair of the OECD DAC uh, since 2016. Uh, prior to that, she was the director general uh, of CETA, the Swedish uh, International Development Cooperation Agency, and before that, served as secretary general of Save the Children International and Save the Children Sweden. Uh, an amazing wealth of experience in a number of different organizations, and she's about to add to that further. Um, if you haven't seen, Charlotte was just appointed as the new deputy head of UNICEF, and she will be taking up that job soon. Uh, so we welcome you in your past, present, and future roles, Charlotte. Thank you for joining the conversation. Uh, and finally, we have my colleague, Marcus Manuel, who's a senior research associate here at ODI and the lead author of the report that we are launching today. Uh, prior to that, Marcus has held uh, senior positions in government, uh, in uh, the DFID, in the UK government. Um, and so speaks with great experience, not only on thinking about these issues, but what it means to actually get things done. Uh, so a warm welcome to all of you. Uh, I will not ask you to turn off your phones and, in fact, do the opposite. Use them, tweet, take pictures, do whatever you like, but maybe silence them. It will make the conversation go easier. And we encourage you to use the hashtag #EndPoverty. Um, and um, our handle at ODI Dev uh, in your tweets. Um, so with that, let me turn first to you, Marcus. Um, your report says something about how we need to fundamentally change some big, big decisions uh, in global financing uh, if we are, in fact, going to eradicate extreme poverty by 2040, 2030. And I think disturbingly, um, points to the fact that we are currently not on track uh, to end extreme poverty by 2030. Um, so please let us know, why are we off track only three years into this agenda? Should we have seen this coming, and what do we need to do to get ourselves um, out of this rut? Thank you very much, um, and thank you. Welcome to, to ODI. Um, we are going to be talking about a lot of large numbers, billions and trillions, uh, but also about zero. 
Um, but I'd also like to say that part of this exercise, which involved looking at 145 countries, involved a lot of data. So I want to give thanks to my co-author, Harsh Desai, uh, I don't know if you can give away from there, who was the guy who managed all the data, and also my colleague Emma, who was the person who was responsible for putting together all the poverty projections, which is showing about why we're so off track. So it's a, um, a multi-process multi event. So thank you very much. Okay, finance the end of extreme poverty. What's the challenge? The world is not on track to end extreme poverty. Actually, this is probably the most off-track target I've ever had to talk about. We are 400 million people off-track. Not zero, but 400 million. And what's even more scary is that they are now all, nearly all concentrated in countries that can't afford to end extreme poverty from their own resources. We've been through a period where lots of countries have been self-financing. China's been introducing pensions. India's talking about inducing health care. We've seen massive roll-ups of uh, poverty programs in many countries. That's not going to happen anymore because these countries can't afford to do it themselves. So our report um, picks up in particular um, on 29 countries which can't afford even half the cost needed. So what we've done, we said, well, how much poverty can we get reduced through growth? If you do just growth, you end up with a 400 million number. Half of those, so 200 million, are in these 29 countries that then can't afford to do the other part of poverty reduction, the investment in the social sectors, in particular health, education, and social protection. How do we know that? Well, we've looked at the amount of money these countries can raise themselves. So if you're looking up here, you can see the red bar illustrates the amount of domestic resources. We've made two assumptions. First of all, we've assumed countries increase their tax to the maximum that the IMF and the World Bank think is possible given their economic characteristics. So we're already maximizing their tax. The second thing we're maximizing is maximizing the proportion they give to these three sectors. So there are international targets for spending on health, education, and social protection. So we factor that in. So if you take the maximum amount of tax, the maximum amount of share, you still end up with a Central African Republic having 4% of the resources needed to invest at the scale needed to end extreme poverty in that country by 2030 through those social programs. At the other end of the chart, you have countries like Senegal, which are quite close to 50%. And just off the chart, would be somewhere like Ethiopia that's just a bit over 50%. So that's, that's the track. That's where we are in doing that. So what about the external finance? We looked at the domestic. What about the external finance? So if we just look at the aid side, what is really shocking is that we have a system of aid that gives more aid to the richest countries. It seems so counterintuitive, it is still shocking to me. And, but if you look at it, if you look at the typical low-income country, they receive 10 times less aid per person in extreme poverty than a typical middle-income country. Not only is the aid system imbalanced and going the wrong way from what you would expect, in addition, the aid situation is getting worse. So however you look at it, whether you look at the median, whether you look at the mean, whether you look at the share going to LDCs, all of those are going in the wrong direction. The amount of aid going to the poorest, the ones that have most financial need of it, are getting less aid. What's the result of that? We're seeing massive underfunding of the sector. So Central African Republic has been an aid orphan for a long, long time, and it remains one of the most underfunded countries uh, in the world. 
What it means is the social sectors, only 14% of the funding gap is being met through aid. In education, we only provide $3 per person to help their education system. That does not buy you a lot of education support, even in very poor countries. And in social protection, it's so bad that only 20% of the world's extreme poor are covered by a social protection scheme. So there is a very real human cost to this level of lack of domestic resources coupled with poor targeting of aid. So what we suggest and what we analyse is saying, well, what changes would be needed in aid to change that around? Um, and the answer is you don't need trillions, but you do need to use aid much more wisely and you need more of it. So if we target half of the aid to the poorest countries, at the moment it's only something like a quarter of aid goes to the poorest countries, that would be enough to get everyone up to the level of we can afford 50% of the costs that we needed. That will get everyone at least up to a minimum bar of we can get to 50% of the way. If, however, we think it's important to get everyone up to fully affording what needs to be done, we need a lot more resources, maybe six or seven times more. And to do that, we also have to increase the amount of aid. If all countries or donors lift their aid to the 0.7% gross national income commitment, then we would have enough aid to be able to do that. And that's assuming that half of aid is for social sector, the other half is needed for infrastructure and other investments. But it's a recognition of the level and the scale um, that needs to happen and needs to change if we want to be serious. Money alone is not going to end poverty. But without some money going to the right places and the right sectors, there are many countries that have no chance of ending extreme poverty. And that's the thrust of our report. So how does this imply and how does this play into the debate that's happening at UNGA? ODI is a think tank, so we like to sort of make our advice a bit policy relevant. So just two things. We think we need to challenge some of the myths that are out there. So some people say, well, half of the poor in middle-income countries, so they should receive half of all the aid. Now, we hope this report allows that myth to be quickly demolished. Yes, half do live in the middle-income countries, but they're much better resourced to be able to deal with that themselves. The typical middle-income country has 10 times the level of tax per person and 100 times the level of tax per person in extreme poverty. So they can continue in the main, not all of them, but most of them, to deal with eradicating extreme poverty by themselves. They don't need half of all aid. The second one we want to kill is that social protection is unaffordable in low-income countries. It's just not true. It's the same order of magnitude as either education or health. And that's including having a universal system for children, a universal system for the elderly, a universal system for those with living with disabilities, and a targeted system for those who need, need work, as we have seen in the Ethiopia Safety Net program. So we can challenge the myths. We also need to rebalance the narrative. A lot of the narrative at the moment is about billions to trillions. We need to bring in the private sector. ODI fully agrees with that. It's really important. But what this report also says is we're not succeeding there. We can raise additional taxes. We can think we raise an additional $2 trillion a year in taxation in low- and middle-income countries. But 99% of that 
is in middle-income countries. We can raise private sector money for infrastructure. And we've looked at what's happened over the last decade. 98% of that is going to middle-income countries. And when we look at leverages, we're not getting the leverages. In the, we get leverage in the middle-income countries. Donor money <coughs> brings multiples of private sector. It's the other way around in low-income countries. So we have a real challenge to shift if we're going to get private sector finance to help in low-income countries. So our final plea is we need to put targeting and the volume of aid back on the agenda. 0.7 is not just an old UN target about a growth model. It is also actually the amount of money we need if we want to be realistic about ending extreme poverty. Let me close having talked for trillions of billions with a picture of one person. Mm. This is a woman in Ethiopia. She is walking beside an irrigation channel that has just been built as a result of the Social Safety Protection Net program in Ethiopia. That program reaches 10 million people now. It accounts for a third of all of those that are escaping from poverty in Ethiopia. It is one of the reasons why Ethiopia is seeing poverty rates fall so fast. The lack of that kind of picture in Uganda is the reason why poverty rates in Uganda have just gone up. When we think about supporting low-income countries to end extreme poverty, I'd like you to think of that photograph. That needs to happen all across Africa. And at the moment, it happens hardly anywhere, and Ethiopia is the almost exception. And if you're into climate change, not only do they plant the trees to change the agricultural incomes, they also offset the entire CO2 emissions for the transport sector in Ethiopia. There are some real win-wins in this kind of process. But unless we see more of this at kind of scale, we're not going to be able to end extreme poverty. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus, and thanks for the great uh, report and the work that has led to it. I'm going to turn now uh, to Minister Tornes. Um, Denmark is famously uh, a generous donor, um, and you score well uh, not only on the volume of aid, but on where you allocate it. Um, this report in particular uh, recommends strongly, as been agreed previously in the DAC, of ensuring that 50 percent of all donor aid go towards um, LDCs. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what Denmark's strategy is on how you think about allocation um, and what, what this information tells you about what you and others need to be doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and first of all, I would like to say that we are actually heavily involved in the, in, in the program in Ethiopia. So uh, thank you for <laughs> mentioning uh, this specific program. But uh, let me really congratulate you with uh, a very, very good report. And I really couldn't think of a more relevant and also a more uh, timely topic to raise at this mm. very uh, uh, very um, uh, important moment, and and uh, therefore I'm also very happy to be part of this uh, discussion today. If development financing is not on everyone's list of priorities, it should be. It will require investments of thousands of billions of dollars to meet the SDGs every single year. <coughs> ODI's report exactly addresses that challenge. More than that, it also suggests way forward, as we just heard. Mm. The report's four <coughs> recommendations feed into an interesting debate about what it takes to eradicate extreme poverty. 
and achieve uh, sustainable development globally and leaving no one behind. In this context, I think ODI the ODI research can serve as a very important source of inspiration to people like me, but not just to people like me, to all of us. Uh, while we look forward studying the report further, allow me to add one element that may not be sufficiently captured by uh, the new approach and to present a possible fifth recommendation for this panel to consider today. But before doing that, I will ask or, or, or I will give you a sneak peek uh, of how we approach development cooperation in Denmark, which may explain also why we rank among the top of the of 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 the new uh, among the the top uh, of the new index. And um, let's get the simple part of the explanation out uh, of the way first. Mm and that is that Denmark lives up to the 0 0.7 target. And we have, by the way, done so uh, the last 40 years in a row, and we will continue to do so. There is a broad-based political support across the Danish parliament and also uh, amongst the, Dan the Danish population. Secondly, we have fully and wholeheartedly embraced the 2030 agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs are the very foundation of our strategy for development cooperation and humanitarian actions. We call it, uh, we call it World 2030. While we recognize the importance and uh, mutual interdependency of, uh, of the SDGs, we also recognize the need to prioritize and target our efforts to maximize, maximize our impact. We prioritize a number of goals where Denmark is well suited to assist. And I fully agree that a strong focus on social sectors is absolutely key. But we also need to create jobs for the millions of young people who are seeking an, a job. We also pursue a geographically targeted development policy. We are engaged in broadly three categories of countries, like poor and fragile countries, poor and stable countries, and transition and growth economies. Our financial prioritization is on poor, fragile countries where poverty is extensive. This includes Afghanistan, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Palestine, and Somalia. And these countries were among mm. uh, the countries mm. that, you, that you have also been looking at. Um, in addition to the targeted approach, I would argue that another crucial factor is Denmark's whole of society approach to development. We bring on board all relevant actors, the private sector, civil society, Danish authorities, and research institutions as well. They all have knowledge, competences, and technologies to help solve the global development challenges. Together, in partnerships, we make a difference. 
That leads me to the fifth recommendation mm. I promised at the beginning. Mm. Partnerships. Partnerships are absolutely imperative to achieve the SDGs. And that's where I believe there is a paradigm shift in the way that we are addressing development cooperation compared to when we were working to achieve the Millennium Development Goals. Meeting the Sustainable Development Goals require significant investments, of course. ODA is an important part of this, as we all know. Right now, only five OECD countries meet the 0.7 target, and that's not good enough. I therefore encourage my government colleagues, whenever I have the, have the chance to do that, to come and join us in the exclusive club, which should <laughs> no longer be as exclusive as just uh, uh, of five members. We all have strong interest in investing in sustainable development. However, even if all donor countries contributed to 0.7, it would not close the investment gap. ODI rightly points out that reforms aimed at enhancing the effectiveness of public spending in target countries would narrow the gap. I agree to this priority. But the <coughs> other thing that would really make the big difference is leverage, leveraging more private investment, engaging in uh, mutually benefici beneficiating partnerships with private sector actors is crucial for sustainable development. Thankfully, it appears a paradigm shift is underway in international development architecture. Still more countries emerge as both donors, investors, and source of capital and know-how. Blended finance models with different combinations of public and private funds are growing fast. The 2030 agenda today is much larger than just financial transfers from wealthy to poor countries. And let me give you a concrete example of how Denmark works in this new paradigm. In June this year, the Danish Prime Minister launched a so-called SGD investment fund. It's a partnership between six private institutional investors the Danish government and our National Development Finance Institution, IFU it's called. Uh, the fund will accelerate progress towards the SDGs through commercial investments in developing countries. At the same time, the investments will ensure a solid return for investors. Our role as government will be catalytic and to ensure a sufficient prioritization of the poorest countries and poverty alleviating investments. So far, the SDG fund has raised under 650 million US dollars. It is expected that the fund will generate or contribute to investment of at least 5 billion US dollars. So a conservative leverage factor of six to seven. With this example, I just want to demonstrate the important role of partnerships. We can do very little alone, but much more when we do it together. That's why I would add a fifth recommendation that encourages the establishment of broad partnerships. 
The 2030 Agenda is for everyone and by everyone. It has completely changed the development landscape. We are all part of the global equation. Let's manifest that with innovative partnerships. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm going to turn to you now, uh, Mr. Safa. One of the things uh, that we have been hearing about today is whether the aid is going both to the right places and to the right sectors. Uh, you are, uh, as the finance minister in Sierra Leone, both uh, the co-chairs of the G7 Plus grouping of fragile states, and so you're thinking about how to deal with those challenges. Uh, you have all of your own things within your country to think about how is the social services, health, education, how are those actually going to be effectively financed to achieve these goals? So share with us some of your thoughts on how, how you think you're going to be able to accomplish that and what expectations you have from your partners. Thank you very much for the invitation to participate in this discussion. ODR has consistently brought great minds together to look at uh, different challenges, develop solutions, and create a change. We appreciate that. And I bring you greetings from the President Julius Madabio to be here. When I told him about this occasion, he, he knows about it and he really asked me to come and participate because of the issues that we have to bring on the, in the discussions. Uh, just to build a, quickly build a country context, Sierra um, is a country with a population about 7.3 million which uh, rank 179 out of 188. It's a very poor country with a, with a per capita income of about 460. And the, the, with half of the population live under the poverty line. The indicators are not good. Basically, school completion is about 25% at the primary level, which means only 25% of those who are enrolled in primary level cannot complete CCL of schooling. At the secondary level is about 35.4 percent. Then um, the health indicators are not good. Life expectancy is about 50 years, compared to neighboring Liberia 53 and Guinea 59. The life, uh, the infant mortality 92 per 1,000. Under five mortalities, 156 per 1,000. Maternal mortality one of the highest in the world, 1,163 per 1,000. I mean, that you can therefore see why the topic financing the head of poverty is very crucial for Sierra Leone. Now, the economics is not doing very well as at now because of several factors. Basically, got the closure of the mining operations. Growth is projected to be about 3.7% for this year. And the revenue GDP ratio as of 2017 was 12.7%. We expect to increase that I mean, because of the intensified revenue mobilization drive we've embarked on. We expect that by 2023 or 2019 going forward, it will reach 20% threshold. Now, the issue is this. Based on the statistics generated from by ODI and the, from the UNESCO, from the World Bank and WHO, we need about $357 billion to finance education by 2030. We need $578 billion for healthcare by 2030. Social protection, we need about 258 billion, which means annually we need 100 billion. From the domestic revenue side, assuming we maintain a revenue GDP ratio of 20% up to 2030, we can annually make 780 million annually. 
which means you have a, we have a financing gap about $313 million yearly. $313 million to meet our the financing gap to finance our poverty reduction program, notably education and social protection. That excludes financing other development parity. But from where would a small open economy like Sierra Leone generate approximately one billion every year to spend on the social sector and miss competing priorities? That's the question. Quite apart from that, the, 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 the debate should not only be about accessing the resources, but also how these resources are delivered and used. The delivery mechanisms, the use of these resources is key for as a country. Now, in, in general, the, 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 we need to work together to help countries like my breaking through financial challenges. Fragile states have and continue to struggle with access to sustainable financing. Some of the challenges include volatility of commodity prices, a state challenge, uncertainty of short-term financial flows, debt sustainability restriction. And let me explain the debt sustainability restriction. The, the, the traditional means of financing development have proved to be inadequate, given the huge financing gap we have. So developing countries like Sierra Leone has, is looking forward to private capital. And I would not hesitate to say here is that for sub-Saharan Africa, there is a possibility of us going to China because China is providing huge amount of resources to meet our democratic head, to meet our uh, financing needs, particularly in the area of infrastructure. And the other reason is that the, 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 um, because governments are elected every five years, governments are like compared to deliver tangible projects in 36 months of the after elections. And the, the, the arrangement with China seems to be friendly for most African countries. The, the 36 months you are forced to deliver tangible projects like roads, like bridges, because that's what the voters need out there. The only caution we as a government is that we, we, we we're developing guidelines to make sure the financing model we use for Chinese investment in Sierra Leone do not pose too much threat on our balance sheet. I mean, that's definitely the key to us because you cannot be contracting debt and at the same time, you have to be paying debt services. That, that appears irresponsible. So we, we were very proud to say that we're very mindful, but we, 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 we have to go for private capital, but within a structural framework that will not pose much burden on our budget. Then we, it's, it's important to underscore that. We also have the challenge of domestic revenue mobilization, which is key. We intensify efforts in that direction so that we can at least maintain the level where we are if we cannot increase. But uh, in view of the foregoing, while we continue to step up efforts to mobilize domestic revenue, selling like other low-income states strongly agree that now is the time for all of us to discuss critically our tailor-made financial instrument for development financing that take the underlying cause of fragility into consideration, can be developed and used to accelerate progress towards the achievement of SDGs. As we discussed today to provide some suggestions on new ways of financing the end of extreme poverty, I, I, would, like to, I would like us to consider strongly how together we can develop strategies on how the following can be achieved. Strengthen domestic mobilization, improving the consequences of some tax and expenditure policies on inequality and tackling illicit flows. Encouraging advanced countries to increase the amount of ODA given to low fragile states. 
and exploiting the potential of ODA to facilitate additional investments from multiple sources, including private finance. Increasing the representation of developing countries in international economic rule setting and decision making so that international rules and standards can be more aligned with sustainable development objectives. Multilateral and international financial institutions jointly review the extent to which the current set of financial instruments, initial framework and support systems are appropriate in poor countries' context with a view to identifying possible new instruments and recommending other needed resource reforms. Formulating innovative financing mechanisms like blended finance to provide additional and predictable resources and increase access to climate finance. Supporting the development of financial markets in low-income low countries and fragile states, including local currency bond market to facilitate long-term investment and sustainable development, is about developing the capital market. Then also ensuring transparency and accountability of financing national, regional, and international levels. So basically, the point we are making here is that we, we require the resources. We, 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 we appreciate the traditional partners to provide the resources. But we see ourselves going for capital resources, for, going for resources out from the external capital market. So what we need, therefore, as we advocate for increased development assistance from the traditional partners, we also look at our assistance to develop our capacity as a country to negotiate with private capital creditors out there. Because we cannot avoid that, given the situation we find ourselves. So this is a country, as I said, which has been in power for less than six months. We're trying to consolidate fiscal regimes. We're trying to improve expenditure management. We've launched a massive free education program. I'm proud to say that we've, in the supplementary budget of this year, we've increased uh, government expenditure to, uh, to education this year in total expenditure to 21%. We've raised it up from something like 13% to 21%. We're now working on the health sector to get, take it to 15%. The major area we're going to face challenges is the area of social protection. Quite apart from the fact that the, the amount of resources required for social protection is quite huge, we have the huge challenge of targeting and we have the huge challenge of delivery mechanisms. Hmm. But we're looking forward for guidance in those areas. So, again, the world needs to look back. Yes, you don't want us to go into debt. But what can we do to avoid the debt? What can we do? I'm not necessarily advocating for debt forgiveness, but probably support us to avoid us going to very bad negotiations that can make us more irresponsible. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Charlotte, before we go uh, out to the audience, uh, I think you're already hearing a really interesting discussion about how this gap formed uh, and uh, what can be done about it. Um, you sit and guide these discussions every day with the donors who are thinking about how much to give, where to give, what the priorities for giving should be, how to convince the donors to allocate more to the countries and, uh, and sectors that need it most and that are going to be most fundamentally important to uh, ending extreme poverty. Uh, so please share with us uh, some of your thoughts and reflections on, on, on what can and should be done uh, to change some of this uh, tide. Well, thank you very much. And, and may I start by, by 
just recognizing the report. Uh, I think, uh, as as Ulla, dear minister from Denmark, said, it's it's very timely uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you can see that the discussion is more around uh, new finance or re new resources, as well as other actors, perhaps than the OECD DAC uh, um, community, be it China. So we run the risk of shying away from discussing uh, the 0 0.7 and the, what ODA still can do. Uh, and I think this uh, report uh, is, is fuel the debate, uh, in, you know, and the timing is right for that. So thank you. I think it actually helps what we are trying to do. When we look back, we can, we can also see that things have improved despite the figures of five, 400 million, which really is, is, should be shocking and really something we need to take care of. When we look back, uh, part of what you recommend or, or, you sh or what you show in the report is, is true, I mean, is what we brought us here. Growth, yes, but also investments in health and education. And sometimes we, we, we debate whether ODA has helped at all. Uh, and we know that it hasn't been the whole solution, absolutely. But it's also right to say that the investments uh, from ODA into health and education, uh, research show that it has helped people to lift themselves out of poverty. So part of your recommendation here, I think, is valid uh, as, as, as kind of a history and, and experience. But you also add uh, social protection to your recommendations, and I will come back to that. Because we obviously need to continue to, to uh, advocate for the 0 0.7. Uh, because knowing that, yes, we need other financial solutions to end poverty, we also know that when we look into uh, the private uh, investments and resources that currently uh, is being delivered uh, by, by, you know, in partnerships and all of that, we do see that for, for different reasons, uh, they are not targeting the 29 countries or the people left behind that you, the, you so rightly point out. Uh, but at the same time, what we, what we do see is that philanthropy, for instance, which could be targeting the most in need because they are not accountable to taxpayers in the sense that they can really take risks, if you will, and really experiment in the hardest and uh, uh, dif difficult circumstances to work within. They actually follow a lot of, uh, of ODA is being invested and other sources. So if you will, philanthropy is also feeding the middle income countries rather than taking the risks in the most difficult places to work. So we have a little bit of an, uh, a kind of a fat middle <laughs> where all the financial resources seems to be focusing because that's the least risky, perhaps, and perhaps the easiest way to defend investments. So ODA should be targeting uh, the most difficult places and the most uh, left behind because other financial flows so far cannot prove that they are the solution to these 29 countries, for instance. Uh, and we need to be better within the, uh, the DAC to, to uh, let action follow these this, uh, objectives and actually where I think we do agree. 
But it's also important to, to realize that when we crowd in other financial resources, we can actually talk about using ODA where it's most needed because other financial flows can do the work in middle-income countries, for instance. So the, the whole idea of targeting is really, really important to, to, to focus more around. Uh, I also think it's important to, to look at, at where ODA is being spent uh, as we speak. Some 10 years ago, uh, more than, uh, or some 10 years ago, less than 8% uh, of ODA was spent for immediate humanitarian needs. But today, 20% of ODA is being spent uh, on immediate needs. And I think it's very important to look at that trend because it is the same. I mean, we did decide three years ago to deliver the SDG agenda, which is to be seen as a more long-term uh, development agenda rather than a humanitarian agenda. But, but the trend is that we actually don't invest in prevention or in more long-term investments, rather the opposite. While the rhetoric has been around uh, more of a long-term prevention agenda, so we have to really look into this, and we need to reverse the trend as a community and address the root causes of fragility, uh, because we also know uh, through the work that we do at the OECD DAC that uh, in 2030, uh, most uh, up to 80% of the world's poor will live in fragility or countries uh, where, where the contexts are to be, be described as fragile. Uh, so it's very important that we start to look into how do we work with the root causes and the prevention agenda, which is very much also the, the guide, guidance from uh, the UN and the Secretary General. We have recently surveyed the DAC members uh, on their approach now to leaving no one behind. And all respondents uh, within the DAC said that they align with the principle uh, that we should work leaving no one behind, uh, and that they do that either by explicit commitments or implicit commitments, or by planning to make it a true commitment. Uh, and we can... I think we can draw the conclusion that we are perhaps not in the pace we would like to see, but members are moving towards uh, making leaving no one behind more of a conscious, real strategy within their portfolio development cooperation. They do divide this, and this is so interesting based on your report, because they do divide it into geography. So is it countries most in need, or uh, by groups of people, marginalized group, groups of people. And this is really uh, the debate that the OECD DAC committee needs to continue to, to, to have, and also where we are being helped by your report, because what we do see is that uh, there is perhaps uh, still uh, a reason to agree, if you will, on how we defined uh, leaving no one behind, uh, because it is currently interpreted in different ways. And for this reason, this year, the OECD DAC uh, flagship report will be on exactly this, uh, this thematic uh, 
under the title Joining Forces to Leave No One Behind. This report uh, will be launched in November uh, this year, and it, is, it, it aims to help uh, us, the providers of development assistance, to deliver on our ambition to leave, leave no one behind and to, to be, you know, to go behind the slogan and perhaps leave the slogan behind, but really start to deal, deal with, with the issue as, uh, as it should be. And I think it's also fair to say that um, uh, we need to continue to work on the peace and security, humanitarian and development, what we call nexus, uh, because we know that, uh, that the interventions has to be much better in, in integrating the, the perspectives from these three. But it's not about uh, new coordination structures necessarily. It's more about how you can actually interpret, if you will, uh, the word partnership on the ground. It's not necessarily a partnership which is, has only to do with financing. It's really aligning uh, the efforts on the ground towards solutions that are both immediate and, and preventable, uh, long-term and, and flexible. And it's about uh, aligning and, and uh, around a coherent approach uh, on how the work on the ground is being, being delivered, if you will, and not only the finance course. And finally, I want to end on a, perhaps a little bit more a political uh, note, because uh, why is it that we don't see uh, more uh, action behind uh, leaving no one behind uh, and, and really uh, alleviating people in poverty? I think when we, when we, when we see how development policies have been shaped, we can see that more policy is uh, development cooperation is a tool in the in in a foreign policy portfolio, uh, and it might be driven more about mutual uh, interest or self-interest or interdependence rather than fighting uh, poverty as the overall objective. Uh, so it might lead to that investments are not necessarily taking place in the 29 countries where, where you argue that it has to be spent. It might be spent more on a, uh, in, you know, enlightened self-interest and, and a domestic security agenda. And I think this is perhaps a political debate that could take place also based on, on your report. Uh, and uh, maybe... I just started it, so I will end here. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, a lot of issues raised uh, by our four speakers. I have a number of questions, but let's go out first to, to the audience. Uh, please uh, raise your hand. I recognize you. Just give your name quickly, where you are from, uh, and uh, ask uh, a quick question. Uh, we'll gather a couple, and then we'll go back uh, to the panel for some responses and try to do that uh, a couple of times. Um, let's see. Okay, this gentleman here. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, so I'm Alberto. Um, I am a student uh, of economics at a university called Minerva Schools, um, which is near in London. Uh, my question is, um, if we were to follow the recommendations of this report and say that tomorrow um, the funding that goes to low-income countries um, increases to 50% of the total allocation, um, what would be the main challenges for 
kind of implementation of programs? Um, and are there any logistical issues that are keeping countries uh, outside of the political kind of implications that might have? Um, are there any challenges that are keeping donor countries from uh, pushing that to 50%? Uh, or in other words, can countries implement programs with that 50% if that was to change uh, overnight? Great question. Uh, other questions? Um, good afternoon and uh, congratulations on the report. And uh, my name is Anthony Kingsley from Wellfound. It's a small uh, wash charity. We're working in two of the countries, which was on the list uh, Guinea Bissau and Sierra Leone. Uh, we're a small charity. My question is like we are listening to the bigger picture. And uh, uh, the, where do you see the smaller uh, players like, uh, like us um, fall into this category of reducing poverty um, with very limited resources, with very, very limited uh, input, but had the passion and uh, drive? Uh, so I'm just kind of not sure where we are. It is also a great question at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, one more. Any women in the audience perhaps have a question that they'd like to answer up here? Hi, my name is Alexa Owen, and I'm the policy lead for financing for development at DFID. Um, my question was something that Charlotte um, sort of raised, and the, the forecast that 80% of those in extreme poverty by 2030 will be based in conflict and fragile zones. What what should donors do? I mean, uh, does this does this report touch on that? Is there is there something that we need to focus on within financing, within that area, and, and how do you sort of think about that in the future? That's great. Uh, so you know, I, I think that that first and third question are really closely related, right? And you raised this yourself. I mean, in reality, uh, what we are looking at is not just a need, uh, but capacity challenges, what does it actually mean to implement effectively if we suddenly moved to a level of resourcing that's necessary? Are there actually effectiveness challenges? And that if you add on to that fragility, which is obviously uh, where our data suggests things are going, more and more of these challenges, people in extreme poverty concentrated in fragile states, that further increases the idea that it's not easy to get things done always in those environments. So. Uh, I think those two questions are, are powerful and, and, and important. Um, and then the other one, which I think very much relates to something that both Charlotte and the minister said uh, about partnership, uh, which is that you know the only way that we are actually going to achieve these objectives is that if we have open development and that there are a lot of actors, whether they are finance actors, implementation actors, small actors, big actors, working together, um, and that can be tremendous to bring resources and energy, uh, but from the perspective of uh, those in the developing countries that are trying to manage that, uh, it can also be a challenge because it's a lot of different actors and a lot of different players. And how do you harmonize? The government of Sierra Leone has its agenda. How do you harmonize behind that agenda? Those are some big challenges, I think, that come in terms of responding effectively to the recommendations in, in this report. Um, so um, why don't we just go down the line, and uh, I'll ask for quick responses so we can go back and do another round. Marcus? Uh, thank you. Yeah, as you say, brilliant questions. Um, what a great problem to have if money was doubled overnight. Um, I don't think that will happen. 
No, but the more serious answer is, yes, it will take some time. But it will probably take the time it would take for donors to decide to do this and to change their policies. So I'm not worried about it. But particularly on social protection, you just can't suddenly launch social protection. I mean, the ministers mentioned the targeting issues. Ethiopia's got that way after about 10 or 15 years. These take wildly. But unless you have a firm long-term commitment from donors that they are going to do that kind of thing, developing countries are not going to want to do that. They're not going to roll out child benefit to every child in the country. They're not going to roll out a support for those with disabilities everywhere in the country if they think the money's going to be turned off in two years' time. So it's both the need for long-term commitment and the process. But yeah, it can be done. It'll take some time, but it can be done. You can, you can build the capacity if you need to. And we can deliver social protection in, you know, in all sorts of countries, in Niger, in DRC, in Somalia. It's possible to do it. So you can find also short-term ways of doing it. In terms of the, the fragile states, uh, yes, we agree, 85% are in fragile states. That's going to be a big challenge. Um, and in fact, there was an entire public event here a month ago which said, are we doing it well in fragile states? So the answer was no. Do we need a new approach? Yes. Um, and that's why it's great to have the new incoming chair on the, for the G7+, because uh, we've had the privilege of working with G7+, for many years. Um, and basically, we think the new deal needs to be rewritten and you know, reinvented because we need to be doing it much better in fragile states than we're not. Great. Yes, um, good question, especially for me representing uh, taxpayers' money mm. uh, and uh, not just representing, but also being responsible <laughs> for taxpayers' money. And uh, I have to be responsible to the Danish parliament and to, 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 to the Danish uh, taxpayers. And, and therefore, of course, I also have to look into where do I get uh, the most effective uh, use of the taxpayers' money. <coughs> and, and, and their capacity is, of course, a challenge, capacity in, 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 in our partner countries. I remember it was many years ago uh, while I was just newly appointed uh, development minister for the first time, and I had to choose a new partner country in Africa. And it was like Ethiopia, Mali and Niger and actually Ethiopia went into some mm. kind of turmoil mm. and they uh, prisoned some of the of the uh, opposition politicians so they got out we couldn't enter into uh, partnerships with them due to uh, not so good governance as we would like to see um, Niger I very much like to go into Niger with a, with a, with a country program but uh, the capacity in the ministries, in, in the systems that we would like to deal with, we're, we're actually not uh, at a stage where we could go into the partnership that we usually do. So, so we actually choose Mali. Uh, but I scaled up in Niger, though. Mm. <laughs> but, but, but not with a country-to-country -country program, more at another level. So capacity, I mean, uh, that, that is really... if. if when we are scaling up, we are always taking into account what is the capacity of the people that we are working with, uh, or else I risk to uh, get the head cut off in Parliament. Uh, mm. um, uh, conflict, areas of conflict. Uh, we have been in Afghanistan uh, since 2002, uh, and actually Afghanistan is at the moment the biggest uh, bilateral country program that we are having. So just to say that, that, that we are also uh, taking risks in, 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 in areas of, of, of conflict and, and, and instability. Uh, but it is difficult. Uh, I 
keep on getting uh, questions from Parliament. Uh, what have we achieved? And we're still there. How many how many girls and and are in in school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so we always have to uh, explain and 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 uh, also I feel defend uh, our presence in countries like this because the uh, immediate results are sometimes very hard to to see. Um, what are the roles of, uh, of, of uh, NGOs, uh, civil society? I mean, the, the beauty of the SDGs is that it's concerning <coughs> all of us. It's about all of us. Uh, so of course there's room for all of us to contribute also. Being it advocacy, uh, I rely on a public uh, uh, support for uh, development cooperation amongst the Danes. Uh, so each and everyone who would like to contribute to advocating for the need for development cooperation do of course have room and space for this. Uh, so, so being it advocacy or, or in terms of partnership with uh, partners in, in, in different parts of the world, of course there are room for all of us because it's concerning all of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let me start with the role of quote unquote the small players. Uh, uh, first of all, I recognize the role uh, they play, particularly in the area of social protection. And to me, they've proven to be more effective because t about ten years while I was in opposition, I worked quite a lot with them as a as a private consultant. Uh, so I know exactly their strength. The only thing I, I think we still have to continue to play that role. But the only thing that we probably like to put here to say here is that. You, 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 you must be seen to be more accountable because you demand accountability from the state and therefore the state is in turn should demand accountability from your side. Then you, you, you have to build in, your sustainability is, is a little bit something we need to improve on. How do we sustain your programs? And one of the reasons why your programs are generally not sustainable is it's because they're not integrated into the national programs. They seem to be like standalone programs, not well integrated, and they do not build on local capacities. When you do not build on local capacity, community capacities, you are not likely to sustain the gains. So your project ends, or your active interventions ends with the exploration of your funding from DFID from other partners. But yes, you have a role to play, particularly in the area of child protection. You have a role to play, particularly in the area of persons living with disabilities. You seem to have quite a lot of capacities. You have a role to play in the area of maternal child health as well. At community level, but they must be account you must be accountable. You must be the intervention must be sustainable, and they must be integrated by extension into the national program. Then the issue about implementing projects, whether if the, the ODA is increased by 50 percent, whether we are ready. They are talking about our readiness, and my understanding is you know, absorption capacity. That that again calls in for the business model we are using. I mean. Um, if, if, if the dilemma the, the, the is that we take one year for a 50 kilometer or one year to do feasibility study, probably one year to design the project, or one year to, to, to go through procurement, we need to look at the, the, that bureaucracy to see whether it can be shortened. For the same 50 kilometer of road, if you go to private capital, they can deliver it in one year with all that. So the, the business model which the aid agencies are using probably need to be revisited if you have to shorten the time. Yes, Africa has a capacity. Nobody can question a capacity. If you don't believe, give me $2 billion today. In one year time, in Sierra Leone, I will use it. <laughs> yes, I will use it. And I will use it judiciously. 
Only that I will make sure that the bureaucracies are stopped and the, but the judicious use will be made of the resources. We really need to look back. We don't want, I do recognize the fact that Africa will have insurance and structural problems in and out. But I believe we can be more efficient in using resources if the business models are revisited. But if we have to go by the traditional business model, we're going to take taxi six months to deliver a 50 kilometer of road while people are waiting. The fourth year after elections, we're running for another elections. We can't, you know, so our patient will, will run out of patience so sometimes. I will tell you, I've seen projects the same amount have been efficiently done by the private sector. Can, can we do a rethinking and probably start working with the private sector instead of the NGOs now in some particular sectors? Is it possible directly? These are things we need to put on the table. Mm. Thank you. Charlotte, did you want to respond to any of those questions? Maybe unmute. Exactly. <laughs> now I'm not on the thing. Now I, I, a lot of uh, important things have been said. May, may I just add a few things? I think when we when we uh, look at uh, social protection schemes, uh, uh, what we've seen when we really want to 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 lift people out of poverty. Uh, what is what is kind of uh, hindering and hampering, and why why are people kind of very easily falling back into poverty? It's because we, and this might be too simplified, but we we work on job creation, but we should work on a combination of job creation and social protection schemes. Because if if a job is 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 there but not sustainable because of 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 uh, things that happens, a social protection scheme in in parallel can actually help to sustain the trajectory to, to really get a more sustainable job in the end. But we tend to work in silos. We have job creation on one side and social protection on another side. And this is exactly what we have to do differently. We need to look into what are the solutions that will work a little bit more long term and how do we work together for that objective. And when it comes to fragility, one of the things that I've heard in, in the G7 plus group, not from the donor side, but from Sierra Leone and, 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 and others, is that donors promise to do things differently, uh, to kind of leave a, a lot of leadership and, and, and ownership to, to countries. But, but we haven't changed anything. We're still very tough on compliance and we're still uh, bad at coordinating and we're still kind of really cumbersome to work with. And I'm not saying that that's the only truth, but it's a very important message. And when we are promising to crowd in private sector, uh, we need to listen to why private sector think this is so risky. Is it perceived risk or is it real risk? And how can, how can we, who promise to do both ODA and to create um, new business models, how can we combine the programming uh, a bit more broader? Because what private sector is asking for is capacity, as just been mentioned, very much so, but also perhaps a, a different capacity than the ones that we used to provide. Because they really want what you, Minister, are talking about. They want to be sure that there is financial capacity. And, and that's perhaps a chapter that we didn't touch because we were on the social sector. So there are 
there are things we can do differently. And I would say they all go back to coherent, more long-term, break down the silos, and be a bit more serious about using words as flexibility. We have not demonstrated as donors that we are really living up to flexibility, uh, and not long-term either. So we need to be self-reflecting here, I, I think, going forward, led by, by many of you uh, that are actually uh, doing this in your day-to-day -day life. I'm gonna, we've got some uh, fascinating questions from online. I'm going to throw out a couple uh, that have come in on some of these themes. Um, Thomas from the Small Foundation asks, um, very much in the spirit uh, uh, of, of what Charlotte just said, uh, what are the instruments that are actually been demonstrated to be most suitable uh, for uh, working with government and private sector in delivering blended finance. This has been a <coughs> high priority, high profile commitment, um, and yet uh, some of the data suggests that we are not leveraging as much as we can or should. Those of us who've been through this process know that sometimes the transaction costs to creating public-private partnerships can be quite high. So an interesting question, if we're actually going to maximize uh, and leverage these resources, what's actually working? Um, a second one, uh, someone chose to be anonymous, says, given the political events in the past three years, Trump, Brexit, trade tensions, are countries still interested in working together to achieve the 2015 agenda? I mean, are, is, is this really still the center of the international debate? Uh, or as some have already suggested in this conversation, national interests and other things are, are being shaped in a way that, that makes this uh, less relevant. How do, we, how do we make this discussion, these findings, relevant uh, to the, the, the time that we are in? Um, and uh, the last one from Katerina Boo from the Norwegian think tank agenda. She says, as inequality is increasing with almost, within almost all countries in the world, um, and progressive taxes and social protection are the solution to reduce poverty and inequality, why are donors reluctant to support tax system strengthening and social protection? Uh, or maybe are they reluctant to, uh, to do so and why? We actually had here this morning for a discussion uh, the managing director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, and, and this issue came up as well. Ultimately, domestic resource mobilization is seen as a critical path. Um, are we on that critical path? Um, let me go out to the audience and take two more questions, because looking at the clock, we're really probably only going to get time to go back uh, to everybody. So think about which of those questions are mo most interesting to you. We'll add a couple of more and then go back to our panelists for what will probably be the final round in the back. Or the front. That's fine. Well, I'll go back to you next. Anyway. Cecilia Tillakamara, Policy Officer for Migration at the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Um, on domestic resource mobilization, how can the ODA enhance developing countries actually deliver very concrete um, results from mobilizing domestic resource? Because that's one, of, that's one of the challenges the minister just points out. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the critical discussions is not only how do you increase the resource, but make sure that it is actually uh, being gathered in a way that is equitable and being spent in a way that is actually reducing extreme poverty. Go ahead, final question, and then back to the panel. 
I guess just a, a quick one I'd like to pick up around, so we've talked a lot about wanting to mobilize other resources, and I think we all agree that's really critical alongside sort of retargeting ODA and things like that, but also trying to think about what sort of investments we need to actually be building markets and building the kind of, the enabling environment stuff, which I think we haven't talked about too much this morning, but thinking about what you were saying about the need to kind of work with countries and work in kind of context-specific um, country-owned, country-led ways, building that capacity, building that enabling environment at a local level seems really critical. And actually, again, it's something that doesn't get a huge amount of investment, particularly in the poorest countries, I would say, and actually the places most in need. Mm. Thanks. Um, so we'll go back across again, about two minutes each, and that's going to take us almost to the end of time. Uh, fine. Uh, these questions are really good, so I'm going to, if I may, phone a friend. Because uh, my colleague, Sam, is our expert on um, the private sector and the blending. So I'll let you, you're on notice, so you'll come next. When I'm finished, I'll take the first two. But can I pass the third one on to her? Because I think that'll be great to hear. And can I also say, my, uh, some of my colleagues, Martin, um, is the other co-author who's been very shy and has sat right back at the room, so I didn't even see him there. But uh, we have all the authors here now. So in terms of um, what investments are, are most suitable for the government, um, and also for, you know, for the private sector is a question that I'll, I'll leave to Sam. In terms of the domestic resource mobilization, um, I, mean, I think it's very difficult. There's limits to how far you can go with providing technical support. A lot of this really is about political will. Are you prepared to change the system of tax exemptions you have? You know, um, and I think we should be realistic about that there are political challenges here, and that will, may take some time. It's very encouraging, Minister, to hear what you're saying. You're recognizing. 12.7 is too low and that you, you've got ambitions to get it to 20 and that will make a big difference in Sierra Leone and I think when you have a minister who makes that commitment that is when you can step in and say fine we can now help you to do that if that's what you want to do but if countries don't want to do it at the very highest level um, that, that's, that's a problem we're involved in helping a country uh, redesign its entire fiscal system to so it does allocate more money to the, to the parts of the country that need it the most we're suddenly hitting political backlash, and the whole thing's just frozen because everyone's realized this is going to remove their political discretion just to give money where they like it to go. So these are the very real problems that one, in, one encounters and the limits. You need to have to work through that. Let me leave it at that, but Sam, private sector thing. a minute on what works in London finance? Wow, okay. Um, a plug for my forthcoming report. So I've been looking into this very issue, so just responding to the question. One overall, uh, what I found, leverage in low-income countries for every public dollar that's invested is on average mobilizing 37 cents. So I think we need a reality check about what can be achieved. And this is to do with risk appetite, both on the DFIs, but also from, from investors. So for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, I think there's only one country, Botswana, which is investment grade. So I think we need to challenge ourselves about why we think it is that institutional investors all invest billions of pounds, um, when actually most of sub-Saharan Africa doesn't have a sovereign credit rating. Um, Secondly, I've looked at instruments and that what, what works best. It's a very tricky question. I'm sure Charlotte will be aware of this. The data is very, very poor. My report attempts to look at this, and I have some tentative kind of leverage ratios by ratio, by sector, and by country, which, um, as I say, keep an eye on the ODI webpage, and, I, and I'll talk about that. But really to say that we don't really know, and I think we need much more better data on the input and, and on the output. <coughs> but what we do know is in these kind of countries, what we do need is kind of... Uh, concessional capital which takes on the, the riskiest kind of tranche and actually when you look at the data that's out there it's surprising for example if you look at the blended concessional report of the DFI working group 
I think 40% of their investment is in senior debt. So there are issues, I think, around are the instruments fit for purpose to actually kind of um, address the risk concerns of the private sector. But I'll stop there and, and perhaps read my report when it's out next month. Thanks. <laughs> Great. Thanks for that teaser. Uh, very helpful. Uh, Minister Tornes. So looking forward to uh, seeing uh, the report, so <laughs> I won't go into that uh, 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 on, on, on the blended finance, just saying that we are very, I mean, open-minded uh, and, and, and trying to look into, into where we can get uh, ideas for innovative uh, financing to make sure that we go from the billions to the tri trillions to achieve the sustainable development goals. There was a question on whether um, international cooperation or maybe it was uh, meant as multilateralism is worthwhile. Uh, I can assure you that I'm a strong believer in uh, mm. multilateralism, coming from a small country, uh, addressing uh, global challenges uh, like climate change, uh, extreme poverty, etc., uh, etc. Et we, we need to work together. So, so we are very much uh, on the multilateral yeah. uh, agenda. Well, it's worthwhile. I guess the question is, is it feasible? given some of the other things that are happening. If, if, if in the it's world. feasible, of course it's feasible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not for it's Denmark. <laughs> yeah. But it, some of the other actors. For, yeah. For the global world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, are we in a time where it's so challenging it's, to engage in multilateralism that it's hard for countries like Denmark to to succeed on that agenda? Of course, we do not succeed exactly what we would like to succeed, but 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 that's not. I mean, uh, the reason for not uh, working at a multi multilateral uh, in a multi multilateral way. Um, I of course perfectly understand what you're hitting at. Uh, that 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 multilateral cooperation is uh, is challenged and is under heavy pressure. Um, I'm working very much on uh, the sustainable development goal number five on, on, on gender equality. And, and this is really a goal that is under heavy uh, pressure from mm. different parts of, of the political specter. And, but, but this, I mean, even gives a person like me more strength to fight even harder uh, for what I believe in. So yes, I'm a uh, strong believer in uh, multilateral uh, cooperation. Um, there was a question on um, inequality and, uh, and also um, um, mobilizing domestic resources. And just to let you know that we are working with partner countries on uh, capacity building in taxation systems uh, in, in, in a country like Ghana, for example, but also in Tanzania as well. And, and we are also supporting uh, the IMF programs that are working uh, with capacity building in, in, in uh, also LDCs, um, because we strongly believe on the, in the um, Addis Ababa uh, declaration that states that uh, there is a need for domestic financing as well. Um, capacity building, uh, when we are uh, partnering up with a country, part of our partnership is related to capacity building. But we also have government-to-government -government cooperation in uh, countries where we do not have uh, huge, um, huge partner pro huge country programs, uh, like, for example, in the <coughs> health sector, where people from our um, uh, health ministry uh, is based in, in, in ministries uh, 
in, in the countries that we are doing this government-to-government -government, uh, cooperation. So in many different ways, we are trying uh, to, to, to also deliver on capacity building in, in um, different ministries uh, and governments uh, where we are present. Yes. Great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah just, just quick things. Uh, I, I think we still have a private sector in education. Private sector is, uh, is something we can develop. Already in, in those countries, we, we've, we've experienced a lot of private sector interventions in those sectors, so, I mean, which are like homegrown development, which can be built on. But the starting point should be where we develop a, a PPP framework for those sectors so that we make sure it's with the wider population and it's with those who can afford. But just uh, a policy clarification here. For us, our policy for eradicating poverty is not only restricted to human capital. I mean, agriculture stands very prominent for us here. Mm. Because if you want to reduce poverty, you need to know where the poor is. Mm. And for us, the poor live in the rural areas, they are farmers. Two-thirds of the population are living in the rural areas. So we to us, our cultural intervention is very, very key. I mean, when once you reach the cultural sector, you are likely to improve on people's food poverty. And that's like half the poverty itself. We have, we've already launched a free education program. We've increased government spending on, our, on education to 20%, 21% now. We're working towards the free health care for school-going children. Of course, social protection is seen to be a very great challenge. That is where players like Coach and Coast. NGOs uh, um, will be very useful. But it's important for us to be very clear that we cannot eradicate poverty if we don't look at the agricultural sector, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. No matter what you do in education, no matter what you do in health. So we need to move the conversation by understanding that reducing poverty entails knowing where the poor is. And for the hunger meeting, when you're engaged with the IMF, it's also important to transmit a message to them that the, 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 the IMF policies should inbuilt into, the, into them mitigating measures of poverty. We did something very smart this year. I mean, we, we were derailed from the IMF program six months before the elections. We relaunched the negotiation with the IMF. So we are under pressure to increase fair prices. We have to do it, but smartly, as a Pan-African economist, what we did here was that we, we built into the program a lot of mitigating measures, uh, uh, free education, of course, the school bus systems, you know, deal a lot of other cash transfer arrangements so that when the policy of uh, free, uh, fair price was announced, I mean, the public was not taken aback. They could understand that we are taking the subsidy from fair and using it for them where it's most needed. It's, so, that, to me, that was like an ongoing development. Uh, to me, it served as a lesson that whilst we go in for as quote unquote macroeconomic conditions, we should inbuilt into those policies mitigating measures that do not adversely affect the poor, mm. rather than take them as an aftermath. We, let's come back and address when the consequences have been done. It's, it's okay. So in the, in, in the advocacy, we should advocate that we build into those macroeconomic framework policies that, can, that, that cannot cause further poverty. And also, as I said, I need to emphasize this for policy reasons, so that we, we, don't, we are not seen to be saying Poverty eradication is restricted to health, education, and social protection. For us, agriculture is very, very prominent, and that's mm. what we're pursuing. That's interesting. Uh, last thoughts to you, Charlotte? Thank you. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, I think I'm going to try to respond to two of the questions. First of all, 
Uh, why uh, is it that we perhaps do not, as donors, uh, provide enough investment to social protection schemes? Uh, I think one of the most uh, obvious reasons is that uh, donors uh, who did work with uh, governments, government to government, have kind of uh, uh, do less so today. Uh, and and it has to do with the risk of corruption or the distrust uh, issues that uh, that le has led to that uh, many donors want to do program work which doesn't necessarily include the state. And it's difficult to, to provide social protection scheme long term if they are not with the state. But we just heard, we have just heard today examples where capacity, domestic resources, when they go together, they could actually really lead to investment in social protection schemes. But we have seen less so these recent years than before. Uh, so the, the trust issue uh, is important, uh, as underneath, so to say. But also perhaps the what you get rewarded for, Ulla. I, I'm not uh, expecting you to... <laughs> perhaps agree with me, but, but, but what I sometimes see is that it's difficult to defend the development cooperation policy area domestically. Uh, and sometimes investments in immediate crisis are indisputable as, as good things. Uh, but the long-term investments in relationships, as we just described them, are harder to defend when things go wrong. And when things go wrong, people in the, in the chain, from ministers to the, to the people who, who deliver the, the partnerships, uh, is perhaps run more by, by fear rather than by, uh, you know, the risk appetite, so to say. And I think these are important uh, underlying issues that needs to be talked about. Uh, and and it's very it's a very difficult landscape, and this is where I'm going to end because someone said, is there uh, less interest around the SDGs and the agreements from 2015, 2018 than three years ago? Yes, yes. Uh, Denmark is fantastic in what you're doing uh, at home. But it is difficult today to get the SDGs on the top of the agenda. And what we can see, and it might not be statistically <laughs> correct, but there's a feeling that private sector, sometimes in our part of the world, has adopted this agenda. Uh, because they see some benefit in their business. But they might even be SDG washing. They might even lead the discussion around the SDG away from the universal, holistic, whole, uh, whole of government approach to a list of priorities where they can kind of... of benefit, which is not wrong, but it's not necessarily the way it was meant to be. And I see sometimes that we we have to use the UN, the UN General Assembly and all the meetings ahead to really advocate in our development system for the SDGs because uh, and other agreements, because the political landscape hasn't made it easier. Uh, but there is a movement, perhaps outside of the development institutions, that might really push us to do this, but we we need to fight for this, and it's a great fight. On the yeah. positive note. Uh, well, I think that's a that's a great note to end on. We have a fantastic audience here, and I think what's important is that you are all 
advocates, you are all consumers of this information, you are all decision makers, you are all investors of your time, of your tax dollars. Um, and that movement uh, that Charlotte describes is going to be necessary if we're going to take on some of these big challenges. So uh, first, let me thank all of you for spending the time to be here, uh, for thinking about these issues, for joining us. Uh, you are most welcome here. And second, please join me um, in thanking uh, these fantastic four speakers who have given us an extremely densely packed 90 minutes of, of insights. Third, I also want to thank our tremendous staff here who work so hard to make things like this possible, um, and uh, those working for our colleagues as well, uh, because it takes a lot to kind of make these things uh, happen. So thank you uh, to all of you as well. And, and the last thing I'll say is watch this space, because uh, I think what we're throwing out are some big questions. We've got some more reports coming out. Uh, some events launching in New York, some of our partners have as well. Uh, so stay with us and continue the conversation. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.